Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on the Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. Happy Friday. You're watching The Hash. I'm Jen Sinassi. I got Adam B. Levine and Sam Kessler with me here today for a jam-packed show. Before we get to the weekend, Adam, the crypto and AI worlds are intersecting. What is happening? Yeah, it's an interesting moment. So first up, the debate over AI is heating up. And as the disruptive reality of products like GPT-4 continues to emerge, some big names within the world of tech have been asking for a pause. But that's not a good idea, at least according to Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong, in comments that point to just some of the issues that could emerge from such a move. Those potential issues include who exactly would have the power to order this, who would be enforcing it, and how, in a world of so much disagreement, you would actually be able to pull it off. I've got quite a bit of thoughts personally on this one, but Jen, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Yeah, well, it's not surprising to see comments like this from Brian Armstrong, I think. I think he's seen firsthand what happens to an industry when there's unclear regulation, when there's over-regulation that kind of gets ahead of innovation. So I wasn't surprised to see Brian's comments. On the other hand, I'm not really sure how to think about AI. When you read further down in one of the articles, the petition that has been signed by Elon Musk, amongst others, points to an ethical dilemma when we introduce machines into human tasks. It talks about machines taking over in workplaces, etc. I know, Adam, you'll take us into the detail there. But for me, when I read that, I think that it's more of a human ethical question. And we shouldn't be discussing ethics when it comes to the technology. And so I guess my very uneducated opinion on this so far is that that ethics piece needs to be removed from the technology piece. And I'm not really sure how to address it. So Sam, I'm going to toss it off to you. Yeah, one of the things that I think is interesting to do here is kind of not only with this Brian Armstrong story, but just with this entire AI thing coming up after crypto has kind of started crumbling, at least in some respects, particularly with the market and the prices and all that. One of the things that I've had fun doing is kind of comparing and contrasting the dialogue, the discourse around these two technologies, because in some senses, they've been kind of compared as very similar in terms of being these sort of like hypey VC driven sort of in some sense, not saying this is true, but in some sense, like AI and crypto have been called bubbles with regards to how they've been treated by investors and VCs and so on and so forth. But one of the things that I think we have seen as a dividing line is this sort of safety and ethical component with regards to like international uh, treatment. So I guess the big thing here is I think a lot about China and the fact that China 
got rid of crypto in many senses a few years back. And basically how we see this entire AI thing develop, particularly with regards to whether the United States or other countries decide to slow down at a different rate than, say, China or you know, Russia or whomever else, I think you'll actually see a lot more comparisons around whether international, I guess, teamwork can be had with something like this. You didn't really see anybody talking about trying to get China and the United States together to ban crypto. It wasn't that sort of unethical battle. It was more an innovation-focused sort of a conversation. Maybe, Adam, I know you said you had a lot of thoughts on this. Hopefully my rambling didn't you know, step on any of those. No, no, I think you're right on. I think that there's a couple of things about this. First off, when you look at the technologies of blockchain and artificial intelligence, sort of generative AI that we've been talking about over the course of the last year or so, they're both very disruptive technologies, but they're disruptive in kind of fundamentally different ways. Blockchain is disruptive in that it sort of has the very narrow but very powerful disruption of changing the way that ownership works in an internet-connected world. And that is super powerful, especially when you start talking about money, but it's kind of narrow in terms of who it affects. This AI stuff is going to affect everybody. And so in many ways, although it is a perhaps less deeply disruptive technology in the world of money specifically, in the world of ownership specifically, it's a more disruptive technology to kind of how we live our everyday lives. The challenge that I see there is that it seems like it's well-intentioned, but the game theory just doesn't work here, right? Effectively, you're talking about a technology that's not controlled by one government or by a couple of companies, but that is sort of broadly being developed by probably thousands of companies that exist out there right now, whether building up proprietary or open source technologies. And so the idea that you could have a pause is almost more like kind of virtue signaling than it is a reflection of reality. In reality, what would happen is that basically anybody who's going to talk about it would say, I'm pausing and I respect this and I think everybody else should. And then in reality, they keep going (laughs) or at least some proportion of people kind of keep running. And that, I think, brings us to Brian's comments, which really are about that reflection of when you're trying to apply expertise and regulations onto a technology where it doesn't really fit and you need a new set of rules. Well, even figuring out what those rules will be today, they might not make any sense two years from now. But what we will see is we would see a sort of greater restriction and more power placed in the hands of government, which probably wouldn't be able to actually resolve or even improve the problem but would certainly create major distortion sort of in the world of AI, helping pick winners and losers and helping make sure that the biggest players get bigger while a barrier to entry exists for those on the smaller side. So I think that as with the internet, the best thing that we can really hope for is the government choosing to stay out of this. And that, I think, again, is a reflection that you get a lot more from the crypto industry, given what we've been through over the last 10 years of kind of this same process. Any final thoughts on this one, Jen? Yeah, well, you kind of deflated what I was going to say. I was going to ask about the six-month moratorium and what you think about it. Like, it doesn't sound like a long pause for me, but you kind of took the wind out of that. People are going to keep building it. I guess my final question for you, Adam, is what side do you sit on in this? And that letter kind of points to this technology being potentially more dangerous than any other technology that has been developed in recent history. What kind of dangers do you think we're talking about here? Maybe unpack that for me and the audience. That's a really great question. So when we talk about dangers, a lot of times what we're really talking about is two things. On the one side, it's disruption, disruption to the way that we live our lives today. And that's real. But you can look back through the history of disruption. You can see other similarly disruptive moments. And what you find is that people tend to get jobs in the new businesses, right? 
and that it tends to actually lift sort of everybody up. So it actually does typically wind up being a pretty good thing, even if the disruption is intense and painful at first. As far as the dangers are concerned, I've actually gotten this question a lot. One of the things you see throughout history is that when a technology is used in ways that typically kill a lot of people or injure a lot of people in some significant way, it's usually technology that's being utilized by a government or by a company that has protection and permission specifically given from that government. So my fears outside of the disruption arena for these types of technologies really do revolve around governments trying to take control of them and making it into something where they then use it to improve the quality of their military or something like that, or psyops. Like there's just a whole variety of ways that the technology, if it were limited to a specific number of actors who have a lot of political power, could be used in ways that are really dangerous and damaging. I'm much less afraid of a world where everybody has access to these technologies. And it very much looks like that's the world that is in fact developing. SushiSwap CEO Jared Gray says that he no longer feels inspired amongst regulatory crackdown in the US. He spoke candidly during an AMA on Thursday saying, it really feels like over this last cycle that the majority of the feeling is gone now. Even pointing to a comment from Senator Elizabeth Warren saying she's putting together an anti-crypto army. These comments come one week after the SEC served Gray and Sushi Dow with a subpoena. Sam, kicking this one off to you first. I feel that Jared's sentiment, you know, this general lack of inspiration in the industry is not one that he only has. It feels like the recent regulation has kind of got the whole industry down. What's your perception? Yeah, I mean, I think something I've even talked about before on this show that we've talked about is just like the increasing politicization of the space and the polarization when it comes to all that. So I guess, you know, talking about this Elizabeth Warren thing, one of the ways that we can consider this comment from the SushiSwap CEO is around what impact either this regulatory action or these political statements are going to have on different kinds of people. Like what is inspiring them now and how is that going to impact them? So basically the way that I'm thinking about this now is there's some people who say that the fact that crypto is being attacked could be a positive for the community because it makes people feel like they're kind of in this sort of like rah-rah anti-government decentralization, you know, this sort of like OG Bitcoin maximalist perspective. It might actually reinforce those sorts of things. But on the other side, there might be some of these folks who kind of like we're, we're getting to with these comments who are deterred by that, either because they think that it's going to be impossible to succeed or because on an ideological level, the fact that there's so many people in positions of power and influence and so much advertising and also so much, I think, genuine beating up of the industry ideologically, I think that might push some people away. So I guess what I'm saying here is I think we could see two things, especially when it comes to the divide and the more partisan statements we're seeing now is either we could get everybody getting dispirited because they feel like crypto is getting beat up on or just the fact that things are getting so politicized could maybe fuel the industry, just making some people way more gung-ho and some people way, way quieter. Hopefully that makes some sense. Adam, I'm curious what you think. My take on it is that it is exhausting. It's completely exhausting having been in crypto for, at this point, 12 years and watching this process. Again, if you think about it, the idea that we would be seeing so much attention given by the regulators and by the legislators, and yet we would still not have a definitive answer whether or not the CFTC or the SEC are actually the regulatory bodies with jurisdiction, with both of them effectively claiming that they control everything. The fact that that uncertainty continues to exist 12 years later is not an accident. It is intentional and it's exhausting. And that's the point, in my opinion. When you look at these revolutionary technologies, 
The idea that the people who we would be arguing with this are the people whose power is disenfranchised by these things existing, and the idea that that could be anything close to a reasonable, nuanced conversation that would deliver good results, I think that's the problem. You know, a lot of folks like myself have long thought that this would, in fact, be the way that it would go. And there were a lot of voices out there who said, no, 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 this is an education problem. Once they understand, then they'll obviously see what's in their best interest. And that, again, is a nice theory, but in practice, it isn't what's happened. In practice, what it looks like to me, what's happened is that they've realized the threat and they've taken every step that they can to add more uncertainty, to add more kind of risk into the mix. And I think that what we see here with the comments from the SushiSwap CEO really is that, which is that if you're a good actor, especially if you're somebody who's already had a success in the space, why would you spend the next five years of your life arguing with people whose entire job it is to hate the thing that you're working on, right? Like it just doesn't make any sense. It is demoralizing. But it's also why you have companies like Coinbase out there who really can kind of dominate the US market because they're the ones who are willing to jump through all the hoops and everybody else just kind of is like, all right, I guess I'll just be Binance and go everywhere except all of these places that are going to have this type of standard. So not surprising at all to me. And a continued disservice being done by US regulators whose lack of certainty and lack of clarity on these issues continues to push out who should be really the good actors leaving really mostly people who are willing to take that risk you know, for the opportunity that comes along with it. But as we see, a lot of times they aren't really good actors. So it's quite sad in my opinion. Jen? I will add that even when you take Binance's model and try and operate everywhere but the US, the US still seems to find a way to get involved in your, your business. I want to point out something that Adam, you touched on. The way industry leaders are responding to this is quite interesting. We have Coinbase CEO who has been like really transparent, it seems, really open to sharing what's going on with regulators. And then we have the SushiSwap CEO who in this AMA said he's been advised by his legal team not to really share anything beyond that him and the DAO have been served by a subpoena. I think that the way this affects the ecosystem is going to be really interesting to watch. So in that same AMA, community members are saying, how are we supposed to vote on this proposal? If we don't know what's happening, right? And we'll remember that the SushiSwap CEO made a proposal for $4 million from the Treasury to be put into a legal defense fund for the Dow and any other executives that have been subpoenaed. Sam, I'll give you the last word. What do you think about these two ways of kind of revealing what's going on behind the scenes when it comes to regulation? I'll just quickly stay kind of branching off what you were talking about, about how they have reacted differently. I think a lot of the different response stems from the fact that SushiSwap is a DAO. There were only around 12 people, if I read the article correctly, on that call. These DAOs are run in an ostensibly decentralized manner. No matter how decentralized it is, one imagines it's going to be much more difficult to mount a legal response or a legal defense the way that Coinbase is doing and able to posture towards doing if you are SushiSwap and a DAO. So I think that might be where we see some of that difference coming from. Like, you can't really talk big when you're 12 people on a Zoom call and the money's just not there the way that it used to be 12 months ago. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, the most important conversation in crypto and Web3, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, brand leaders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code THEHASH to get 15% off your pass. Visit consensus.coindesk.com or check the link in the show notes. 
Welcome back to The Hash. Um, we're going to go back and talk about a story around Axie Infinity and Ronin, which is the blockchain that Axie Infinity, the blockchain-based video game, is based upon. Basically, Ronin is being upgraded by the company that built it and Axie Infinity, Sky Mavis. It's going to basically come on the anniversary of that huge $625 million hack that we saw of Ronin last year. I feel like it was time for that, but there's kind of two big things here. First off, this upgrade is going to make the blockchain a little bit more decentralized by moving it from a proof of authority model where Sky Mavis and some of its hand-selected partners were in control of the chain and authenticating things, securing things, and so on. And it's going to transition it to something called delegated proof of stake, where now, if you have around $250,000, you are eligible to be voted in as one of the validators that secures the chains by the community, by other RON, R-O-N token holders. They're also going to be welcoming a bunch of new game studios onto Ronin to build out that Axie Infinity universe and also build their new IP. And this comes as Axie Infinity's player numbers have been lagging pretty substantially over the past several months. Adam, I see you nodding a bunch. I'm curious if you've got any thoughts around whether this is going to be able to pull more people into the, the Ronin-verse. Well, I think that that's the play one way or the other. And it is the play that really is what Sky Mavis has in front of them right now. When you look back at the history of the Axie Infinity game, you see that there was kind of like it was a slow burner for a while. And then suddenly people were like, oh, I could pay somebody else to play this game for me. And then they could make money off of it. And I could make money off of it. And we kind of saw the ecosystem take off there particularly with folks working out of the Philippines, where it really did represent, at least for a while, a better job than was available locally for the vast majority of people. I played around with that myself just to kind of experience it. And it was quite interesting. But one of the other things that I recognized was that the amount of revenue that these people could actually pull in went down by something like, you know, 10 times over the course of maybe about seven or eight months while I was doing this experiment. And so again, that comes down to the economics of the game. And so that's where you get back to the, well, what do they do next question, right? Axie Infinity was sort of the poster child for play to earn, but now as kind of the economics that were implicit to that game sort of came into effect and really drove down a lot of the value that could be gathered from playing it, they kind of are faced with this question of what do we do to get to the next level? I think it makes a ton of sense to focus in on pushing other game companies into this ecosystem. I suspect that they're offering substantial levels of assistance with that. And, you know, if they can pull it off, then it's going to be a good move for them. But that is the move. I see no other move that they could make here. So this is the one that I would expect. Jen? Yeah, I agree with you, Adam. And just a caveat here, I do contribute to a Web3 gaming DAO. So I'm naturally bullish on Web3 gaming. I think the move beyond Axie is interesting to me, right? When we think about early 2022, everyone was like, ah, oh, play to earn. And that's what blockchain gaming is. But when you talk to people in the industry, Gaming should still really be about making fun games. And when we talk about play to earn, playing a fun game isn't really at the forefront there. It's like earning money. And so I think that's how we can see this model start to fall apart and how we can see this model not being as sustainable as we move into the future. So if you talk to people in the Web3 gaming industry, not so bullish on play to earn anymore. And so I feel like Axie, you know, had to make a bold move and bringing game studios in to use Ronin for those, you know, faster, smarter transactions is very, very smart. Sam, I'm going to give you last word on this before we move on to the NFT story that's going to wrap the week. Yeah, quick final thought here is buried in that story that I wrote about this. There's an interesting quote that I got from one of the heads of Sky Mavis who was talking about how they are not ready to move their IP over 
to one of these more decentralized or long-term decentralized scaling solutions that we've been talking about a bunch on the hash from, you know, these ZK EVMs, these other, you know, roll-ups on Ethereum that help scale to faster speeds and lower transaction costs. And the reason is because they don't trust those systems yet. But, you know, in the meantime, I think that this story did highlight the fact that this ecosystem remains a lot more centralized than some other blockchains, some other even blockchain-based games. And maybe that's just a necessity, but it does go at odds with the broader vision of Web3 Gaming. So an Argentinian airline called Fly Bondi has connected the dots between their airline tickets and NFTs. The company is working with an NFT ticketing company built on the Algorand blockchain to essentially make their tickets tradable on secondary markets and also make it so you don't have to set the name of who is actually going to be flying until potentially the last minute. Among other things, the airline hopes to make tickets more useful to their purchasers, essentially, and also to collect some additional revenue off of trading royalties, which is a kind of hilarious way for an airline to want to make money. Honestly, it's a fascinating story. I don't think this could work at all in the U.S. given current regulations. Sam, what do you make of this one? I mean, the royalties thing does make me feel, frankly, like this is a little bit of a cash grab just because the royalties has not been working out in other areas of Web3 and NFTdom. You know, it's not been working out. It feels like they kind of picked up a buzzword and they're going to try to milk this. But, you know, I am kind of optimistic that NFTs does seem, or tickets rather, does seem, especially in light of that whole Taylor Swift fiasco and the fact that they might break up, you know, Ticketmaster, does seem like one of the solutions that might be most applicable to blockchains or one of the, you know, solutions that blockchains might be most applicable to one of the problems. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. I don't find this particularly exciting, but I guess we'll see. Jen, um, tell me why I'm wrong or maybe <laughs> why you agree. <laughs> the airline's got to make money, Sam. Well, okay. I don't know about the royalties <laughs> thing. I think the jury's still out on that. There are a few kind of interesting aspects to the story. I remember when I first started traveling in my teens, I used to collect my plane tickets. I don't do that anymore. Who has time for that? They all go in the garbage. I don't know where that collection is. I think there is kind of this like sentimental part of us, just like people collect baseball cards or I don't know, Happy Meal toys. We collect our airline tickets to show where we've been around the world. I think that is an interesting addition for an airline to add to get people to use their services. And I think that, you know, we haven't seen airlines innovate in a really long time. And if there is an easier way to change names, transfer or sell your tickets independently, if you're not able to go on a trip anymore, that that's a pretty good use case. I know a lot of people who would want to use that. And if it's going to reduce customer service costs, I think, you know, they should at least try it. Adam? Yeah, I mean, the customer service cost thing kind of feeds, I think, right into the value of this, which is that if you can just sell your ticket to somebody else, then that means that you don't have to go through customer service to get a refund. They don't have to refund you. There's a whole bunch of steps there that you can avoid. I think the challenge around this is that when you're looking at the way that the kind of airline ticketing thing works in general, like identity matters a lot. But it's because of that, right? That makes it so that it's such a pain in the butt to deal with an airline. I can't even tell you how many times I've been sitting there and it's like, all right, we're not going to let the plane go because we've overbooked the plane and we need some people to agree to be on the next plane, right? This type of solution would completely eliminate that in a way that's much more market-driven and that would yield results that would be, frankly, better for everybody. But, you know, let's see how it works in Argentina first. <laughs> NFT airline tickets. I got a lot of flack for my NFT take yesterday. So I'm bullish on NFT airline tickets today. And I think that's where we'll leave it for Friday. I hope everyone has a great weekend. I hope you enjoyed listening to The Hash. 
If you love listening to us, you can find us on the Coindesk Podcast Network. That's everywhere podcasts are available every single day on demand. So go listen to us. We would love for you to do that. And if you're sticking around to watch Coindesk TV a little bit later today, we have all about Bitcoin at 3 p.m. Eastern. I'm Jensen Assey. That's Adam B. Levine on this side. We got Sam Kessler on the other side. We are The Hash and we'll see you on Monday. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.